सर माई क्वेश्चन इज रिलेटेड टू अगस्त मिस्ट्री यू हैव गेव अस आइडिया अबाउट अगस्त ड्रिंकिंग द वॉटर फ्रॉम द ओशन टू क्लेंस दिमेंस हैव यू एवर चांस अपॉन ऑन द अनदर स्टोरी ऑफ ब्रह्मा गिविंग कावेरी टू अगस्त एंड ही डज नॉट गिवस बट अ क्रो इन फॉर्म गणेशा टुक फॉर्म ऑफ अ क्रो एंड स्टार्ट कावेरी to say um, mm-hmm. in few words mm-hmm. uh, could this be also been taken as a mystery of agastya um, excellent question excellent question so i i have an entire tedx talk on this thing you can try and see that that ancient storytellers you can search for it in google and see it so i say that many of our puranic stories encoded some wisdom in it and our goal is to unlock the wisdom over there if you have the key to it you can unlock what wisdom is so you will find in the indian context many stories using the same personalities as an example we saw in one of my pictures i showed that uh, vedavyasa wanted ganesha to write the vedas and mahabharata so he broke off his tusk and became ekadantaya and he wrote it but we also have one more story about uh, ganesha right that he ate so many sweets that his tummy became so big and he tripped and fell and the moon started laughing at him and ganesha got so upset he broke off a tusk and threw it at the moon right so here are two stories about how he became ekadantaya and i have decoded both the stories and say that they are saying two different astronomical phenomena do you understand what i'm saying so so the ancients had an excellent entertaining way of pedagogy today when we go to read facts in our textbooks it's so dry you'll not remember that but our ancient indians they wove it with stories for example baskara 2 he proposed to leelavati in one of the sto- uh, sample problems he he used arjuna he said arjuna had x number of arrows in his quiver he used five arrows for shalya he broke off that uh, the uh, the flag on karna's thing then he broke the chariots then he uh, finally killed uh, karna and he had three arrows left so tell me how many arrows did he have so in other words they had entertaining uh idioms from the indian context in which they embedded all of science and such things so people look at the indian context and say hey there's a story of ganesha here there's a story of ganesha here's another story of ganesha here what do i believe that means all of indian religion is rubbish this is what the missionary would come and tell you but the response to that is it is never intended for that these were textbook instances of trying to encode wisdom there were different wisdom so we talked about story of agastya so agastya i'm saying it could have encoded over here the phenomenon that somebody has seen that the sea level was far beyond what it is in present day times somebody has got cultural memory of the uh, ocean um, uh, rather the sea level at one point the shoreline been at one point and at another time been at another point might have tried to address the geological phenomena with a story of agastya drinking of the water you see what i'm saying so similarly something else would have encoded the other story so uh, when you see instances like this where the same personalities are used in different contexts and different puranic stories the real thing is that there is wisdom being encoded over there and our goal is to find out what is the key that unlocks that wisdom so i talked about the story of rohini the story of rohini is a story which says why did chandra love rohini more than the other wives chandra married 27 daughters of king daksha right those are the nakshatras but he is told to have loved rohini more than the others and his father in law cursed him he said you will die because you love one daughter more than the others you're not paying attention to the others then he runs to mahadeva and prays for a boon 
Madhavya gives up and says, okay, you'll wax and wane and everything will be fine. But why the story? Why did he love Rohini? So I've decoded that in that um, uh, TEDx talk. And I've said that it's encoding a story of how often does the moon have an occultation with Aldebaran. Aldebaran is Rohini. And I've shown that in the ecliptic, you have got the stars that you might have from the ecliptic three degrees or six degrees away. I've shown that the moon traces a certain path. So it, in, it, it uh, uh, occurs Rohini more than it does some of the other nakshatras, depending on the path that it takes over there. And I've shown a 19-year cycle over there. So in other words, our, our ancestors had many, many, many years of accumulated observational wisdom and they communicated that with entertaining stories. That's answer. You, you say that Indian culture is ancient, which is fine. But I'm also uh, of the view that, you know, it is synthetic because, mm-hmm. uh, see, the Vedic culture is geographically limited. India is mm-hmm. a vast country. Vedic culture centered around Saraswati, Sindhu, mm-hmm. that area. So, there should I, have been a time. I, I, I would like to contest you there. So no, no, you, made, uh, you made an assumption over there. And so, then that's an assumption about the limitation of geography. That's an assumption. But let's continue on. Yeah. So, from what evidence you get in the Vedas, mm-hmm. at least, this is the geographical horizon you can get. Mm-hmm. Right. However, however, culturally, we see echoes of the Indic thought spreading across very many lands. I'll come to that. But yeah, yeah that is true. Continue. But uh, whether the Vedas are composed in 7000 BC or 1300 BC, mm. I mean, there must have been a time when they, these were geographically limited and then they spread. Mm. So, uh, why is it that we are not taking up a synthetic view like all other cultures? Mm. You know, it has, it has been a remarkable synthesis in India mm-hmm. and what those five forces you listed mm-hmm. are actually trying to break that mm. Uh, you know, long drawn out synthesis over millennia. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe uh, that would be more in tune with uh, facts on the ground mm-hmm. rather than just saying that everything was, you know, uh, together from day one. What is your opinion on I, that? I, I'm not sure I understood uh, what you said exactly. However, I'll try to give an answer from my understanding what you try to say over there. So, to me, the extent of the Indic civilization could have been very, very vast. When I say Indic civilization, I really mean the ideas that uh, seem to have grown in the Saraswati Sindhu area and maybe also in southern India. I have no idea, no way of saying only there and not here. So, we see, for example, in my Facebook post, I talked about the idea of Samhain, which the Celtic people had, and they seem to have observed uh, Pitrupaksha. They observed Pitrupaksha the same time that we in India are observing, and that became the Catholic Church's appropriation and became Halloween. So, examples of that nature, I find across the globe, I'm finding ideas. Now, these ideas could have spread very ways. One is through traders who had come to India, contact, ideas gone and diffuse. Missionaries from India perhaps are gone, but we don't see it. Other than Buddhist times, we don't see that kind of a thing. Or there might have been migrations from India itself to other parts of the world. So, we, have, we find many, many ways of doing these things. Now, when I talked about the five forces that are impacting the Indian cult, uh, history, each came with their own ideology. The, 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 mission, the colonialists came with an idea that God created the world 4004 BC, nothing can be more ancient than that. They force-fit all of Indian chronology to their limited worldview. The Eurocentric worldview came after 1850, after the first war of independence 1856. That is when things changed. Till then, it, India was a source of knowledge. India was a civilized land. India is where ideas grew. These are the kind of books Voltaire and others wrote. But then after the war of independence, all of a sudden the crown took over and there was an imperative saying that Indians had to be talked down to. They had their ruled people. Never let them to think that they're superior and things like that. So entire industrial, intellectual industry was born where people would say, I decoded this trans- uh, Sanskrit text 
and I've got this younger date for it. So an entire industry was born towards uh, doing things of this nature. So the Eurocentric worldview, the colonial worldview is biblical. Eurocentric worldview was a show superiority of the European people. Then the third one was the uh, uh, the, the colonial bias, the, the sorry, the, the liberal academic bias. So they came around with their own worldview, right? They start saying that it is a, a Western model of sociology. Those same sociological models can be applied here. The angry white male becomes an angry Brahmin male here. <laughs> so so the, the white male who, who indulged in slavery and other things in, uh, uh, by Abrahamic religions became the Brahmin who was oppressing caste and other such things. The notion of caste itself was a uh, import from casta and other things from Portuguese. So I'm showing that at various points, various forces, and today finally the Marxists, right? Marxists were out everywhere trying to do a certain kind of a worldview to India to destroy the Indic uh, identity itself. They've got their own ideology. They're not bothered with a synthetic worldview, uh, India out uh, developing a culture, exporting and other such things. They're not concerned with that. Their concern is to try and break it down to a worldview that they can accept. Today, the academia has moved in a direction saying that linguistic model, Proto-Indo-European, that wave goes, one wave goes accorded where people and becomes the uh, Germanic people, the European people. Another wave, 1500 BC, becomes the uh, Aryan invasion theory, becomes this. They brought Sanskrit, Sanskrit related to Proto-Indo-European. They brought Hinduism. So Hinduism is an important to India around 1500 BCE. Then they had to explain who on earth were the Harappans. Oh, Harappans are the Dravidians. That's why there's a separate Dravidian people over there. Now these ideas are embedded so that now any proof that they get, gets cast with these constraints into a certain worldview. So we have got two options, right? One is we can say, all right, this is the worldview I choose to accept. This is what I choose to take over. Another worldview is trying to say, wait, let me try to decode, deconstruct some of these things. And I'm, I've brought about a lot of counterexamples saying that here are the Indic texts. Here is the astronomy over here. Here are some of the dates falling out of these things. Here is the Zebu cattle over here. Here are all these things. Here's why genetics fails. And saying we have a whole lot of problems over here. So my goal here is only to show the awareness that some of the models that we're using today in academia, popular media, popular thinking that is deeply mind colonized by people and we reflect these things is wrong. I'm trying to show that perhaps there is one more model that we must consider. And this model is out of India and these are the kind of transmission routes. I hope that addresses what you wanted, but uh, that's my thinking. Okay. Sir, excuse okay. me, I have a small question. Sir, in our culture, we studied only the Arya word. If we go past for our old scriptures, only it is mentioned as Arya. Mm -hmm. Then how did the Aryan word came? When it was first came Aryan, right. I wanted to know. Yes. And yes. what this Aryan word, how it is developed and, and when it came in, in right. our country. Right. So it, it turns out that the Arya was a noble, right? Just like I talked about the origin of the word Dravida. There is a corresponding Aryan also. Where did Aryan come into the context? So Arya was a word used for people who are noble, with noble qualities. Some of the so-called Rakshishas are also Aryas, right? Because they were noble in some context or the other. And some of the highborn people are also Anarya, like Dushasana, for example. Anarya because he disrobed uh, Draupadi, right? So he had uh, poor thinking judgment that made him an Anarya. So Arya was used in the Indic context only to show noble qualities, like a gentleman, somebody who's reflecting certain qualities in life. I believe it was Max Müller, Max Müller who coined the word Aryan. So initially he came in his earlier works saying Aryan is a race. That's a time when Risley was there, there's a time when all kinds of uh, um, craniometric studies and other such things were done. They're talking about race studies. 
However, later after he was attacked on the astronomy model and other things, later when he was much older, then he, that is the time when he said, why does it matter whether uh, Vedas were written in 1200 BC or 1000 years earlier, it doesn't matter. He had come to realization that the wisdom is there, but uh, these things are not. So he moved away from the idea that Aryans are a race. Then he said they were probably just a group, a linguistic group of people. But again, the idea was wrong. The word Arya has always meant in the Indian context, noble qualities. I don't think Aryan is as manufactured as Dravidianist. Sir, I want to ask you one question. You said that caste came after casta, Portuguese and all that. But in Mahabharata, you know, um, uh, Bhishma refuses to allow Karan to fight under his. You know, so was, uh, I mean, Mahabharata, did it come later or before? The it's a very good question. It's a very good question and we should be able to answer that, right? So, in the Indian context, we only had something called Jati Varna. There are a lot of Marxists today who say that, look at Baswana's poem. Baswana is a famous poet, reformist poet in Karnataka, that he was against the caste system. But I went there and studied what is Baswana talking about. He's talking about the preoccupation with Jati. He's not talking about caste. Caste was an import after the British came to India. There's no such thing as caste. So we had Varna. Varna is described in a certain way in many of our ancient books. Whether it you would look at uh, Bhagavad Gita, how does Krishna, Bhagavan Krishna talk about it? He talks about the gunas. He says your gunas that describe who you are, whether you are noble born, whether you are this one, not born, whether you are drawn towards a noble quality or whether you are drawn to the rajasic quality or a tamasic quality. These are the kind of things that are dear to a rajasic, sattvic person, tamasic person. There's a whole listing of chapter wise, a listing of what is uh, these different uh, gunas. Who are the, what are they drawn towards, the foods they are drawn towards, the kind of things they are drawn towards and so on. This is known for a very, very long time. At the same time, it's also known that Indian Sajjati, the hereditary occupation. So they had occupations in various things. The artisan classes had certain occupations. Somebody else had certain occupations. So the, in the talk that I have given in um, how India became poor, this is also part of the Srijan talk two years ago. I talked about the poverty that is caused in India. I talked about how um, uh, how how the society structured itself with Brahmins, the Kshatriyas, the Vaishyas, the artisan classes and the symbiotic relationship. There was fluidity about these things. Now when you talk about uh, Bhishma talking about uh, Karna and why is he not allowed, he said you are a charity or son. They are referring to his Jati. He was not referring to a caste or some such thing. He was not, caste is seen today as high born, low born. This is a Marxist idea. This is a Abrahamic idea. Because there is an import from their thinking. Casta was something they used for their civilization. With the mixed races that they had in Portugal, Portugal, they used these for their higher class of society, middle class and oppressor and all these kind of things. In the Abrahamic tradition, the Catholic priests, they controlled land, they controlled power, they controlled the education and they oppressed the peasant class and other classes. So they assumed that Brahmins are oppressors. This is what I said. The importing of a Western sociological model to India gives absurd results, which is not reflective of what is there. So they can cherry pick these kind of things and cast it. They say that Bhishma, Ekalavya, all these things prove certain kind of things. However, if you look deeper into it, you realize the fit is very tenuous. It is not something that you can call out and say, this is what you it know, is. His, his teacher, I mean, uh, he also got angry with him and he said that you are not a Brahmin. Right. I teach only Brahmins. Hmm. So you have you know, cheated me. Ah. Why did he get angry? So the society, we don't know. Let me put it that way. I, I'm not an expert to claim that I know what the reasoning for that one is. But my thinking is that there were rules in society that somebody had to abide by. 
if you are a brahmin you had to forego riches you had to live in poverty because you were a custodian of knowledge in order to be a custodian of knowledge you can't be addicted to pleasure and entertainment it takes time away from orally remembering vedas like the dvivedis trivedis chaturvedis were responsible for you cannot be those things if you perhaps had lot of money which you could spend on pleasures of life and so on there's no time to do these things so you had to forego that in return for society's respect to you as a person who is a custodian of knowledge the kings would honor you and so on and so forth so society abided by certain rules for the brahmins certain rules for kshatriya certain rules for something else so in this case the teacher has found that karna has misrepresented himself as a brahmin in order to gain certain wisdom when in reality he was not that that would have transgressed the social norms of those era i don't think there was a caste so called caste uh, uh, oppression over there i don't think so it was a moral code that society chose to live by today the equivalent is today you have got quacks that go around in some of the government hospitals wearing a white coat and pretending they are doctors and doing surgeries but they turn out to be compounders and uh, <laughs> you know sweepers and things like that and uh, sometimes you find lorry drivers are cleaner boys society frowns on that the policeman catches them he'll say you don't even have a license you are clear boy you're driving the truck and you cause an accident you see what i'm saying there's a repercussion for allowing these people to come and do where they're not trained to do that so in ancient india i don't i'm not an expert but i'm saying they had rules it's very clear for the shastra there were rules there were rules that society had to abide by a brahmin had to abide by a kshatriya had to abide by i do not think it is right to cast them in the light of caste oppression the way marxists and left liberals are doing today i don't think that is right yeah so you mentioned some impediments to the understanding of indian identity that was like uh, european colonial <coughs> marxist etc you also mentioned in that uh, vested interests so who do you refer to when you say vested interests over there it was euphemism <laughs> we we live in a multicultural india today so i hate to use us in them but the vested interests here are the organized religions the organized religions are uh, christianity and islam so they are global majorities the global majorities they come with global organization global knowledge resources global management resources and they have got a high stake in controlling your identity in what you learn about yourself and your past uh, dr vedam my name is anand prasad over here uh, i've been a keen follower of a lot of your talks and discussions uh, and i took this opportunity to come here wanted to ask Thank a you. bunch of different questions but i thought uh paucity of time and maybe just ask one question and probably you briefly alluded to it um have you considered the possibility of uh it being a global civilization at one point in time so it's not indic doesn't necessarily get defined by indian boundaries as we understand it today or as we understand it 1500 years back uh but a global civilization where man was in pursuit of truth and understanding the laws of nature mm-hmm. and as a result those understandings grew in different parts of the world probably got accumulated in certain university kind of establishments closer to this geography uh and maybe there was not necessarily flow that went out from india or into india but it it was just the nature of things as it happened mm-hmm. 
what we find today in terms of the globe is uh, various kinds of religions push back paganism as as you would see it uh, and the only place where paganism in those forms remain are on the indian subcontinent by and large they exist in various parts of the world but by and large it gives the illusion that lot of these ideas emanated from india just because that's where those sorts of pagan systems have continued for a very long time but maybe it was not necessarily just india it was all over the world and lot of our ancient scriptures talk about a about the globe it doesn't really talk about the indian subcontinent so let let me let me address that it's a good question it's a good uh, question of the the, the the thrust of your question was could there have been a pan world civilization or ideas evolving in a pan world civilization loosely called paganism that have been forgotten elsewhere except in india that gives the idea that it came out from india so very often in my work i am at a loss to describe why is it that in very ancient times in india there is evidence of high knowledge systems and uh, uh, to understand what i'm saying you need to see some of the older talks for example in chatapatha brahmana in aitreya brahmana there appears to be heliocentrism ideas over there i talked about this earlier then how is it that from the time of that and i dated that to approximately 3000 bce and we know about uh, shushruta's uh, works Shushta also dated to around the same time period because of ideas I've given in my talk on antiquity of Indian medical systems. Although his Western dated to 600 BCE, question is how is it that India at a certain point in time seems to have highly advanced knowledge systems, but by the time we come to Aryabhata, he only talked about rotation. He didn't talk about revolution. When we come all the way to Nilakanta Samayaji, he came to a model of partial heliocentrism. what happened between shatapatha brahmana up to nilakanta samayaji i am at a loss to say that so i feel there's a puncture in the civilization maybe multiple punctures one of the biggest punctures smoking guns for us is the 1900 bce drying up of saraswati the drying up of saraswati must have been a catastrophic event in the indian civilization i have talked about the decay of the indus valley civilization in earlier talk said how to the 200 year failure in the monsoon today in the indian context the monsoon fails for one year our gdp goes down if it fails for five years farmer suicides gdp is down all kinds of things famine other things can happen can you imagine 200 years 200 years of drought 200 years of rainfall failure monsoon failure rivers in southern india are all rain fed can you imagine what would have happened in the south as opposed to north with some snow fed rivers so civilization could have survived in some points in some points people would have migrated out would have lost back and things of that nature so when i look at the data that i have i am at a loss to explain how from the time of 3000 bce and maybe earlier we accumulated tremendously high degrees of knowledge in various fields apparently having lost it all after 2000 bce and having had to have it in pieces and snatches here and there and recover all of these things so to address your question i think there is something that we have to investigate further to try to see why is it that the cultures of the celts the cultures of the uh, mycenaean greeks the cultures of egyptians and the ancient indians why do they show similarities why are there similarities the nordic stories and the vedic stories why are there similarities in various parts of the world so the belief that i have is that 
there was a period of time when there was a pan-world civilization that you're talking about. That's why I try to tell uh, this gentleman that don't restrict the geography. My belief is the contact was far beyond that because our mind can't envision large periods of time. Do you remember in the archaeology, I showed the recent archaeology at the bottom of my list and I put Harappa there. We are conditioned to think that Harappa is the most ancient for us and I showed that beyond that there's so much more that we have. So it's like that. We cannot conceive of these very large time frames. I showed Aditi and the era of Ashwini, 7200 BC, 8000 BC in Surya Siddhanta. How do we even conceive of that much of time of observations and knowledge building up? So to me, it's not impossible. It is not improbable. It appears that Indians did accumulate wisdom. And I told other gentlemen also that Indians encoded the wisdom in Puranic stories. There appears to be um, evidence that different Puranic stories were in, uh, incorporated at different periods of time. That evidence also appears to be there. So, yes, there could have been a time when there's commonality between world cultures because of common source of knowledge. Maybe India was that source. And uh, catastrophic world events did happen. And I, my belief is that isolation could have happened around that time frame. I don't have much proof to talk about it, but it consumes my thinking a lot why it happened. Thank you again. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.